Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Seeking Witchcraft. Today's topic is going to be on the influences of Aleister Crowley, or is it Crowley? We'll find out in a second, <laughs> in witchcraft. And to discuss this topic, I have on Angela Z. So thanks so much for coming on, Angela. Super excited to have you on the show. Feel free to introduce yourself. Thanks, Ashley. Um, it is Crowley, by the way. He used to tell his students... Those who know me wholly call me Crowley. Those who think me foully call me Crowley. So my name is Angela, and I have been a Gardnerian initiate since 1997, so going on 24 years, and I have been a coven leader for 17 of those years. I am also an initiate of the Ordo Templi Orientis. Um, I have been an initiate there, VOTO, for 10 years. Wow, that's pretty impressive. Uh, it's kind of my life. I dig it. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So I guess, where do you want to start about this topic? So I'm thinking a lot of people listening may have heard this name being thrown around before, but maybe might know a lot about him or his influences. So do you want to maybe talk a little bit about like, who who is this man? <laughs> who is this okay, person I um, see talked about on the internet all the time? Sure. I would love to jump into that. I feel like Aleister Crowley and the whole issue of high magic is sometimes avoided by people first exploring Wicca because it's such a vast topic. There's so much to explore. A lot of it can be very intimidating. So I think starting with his actual life and who he was is a great jump off. So if we look at Aleister Crowley, he's born in 1875 in England. He's born into a fairly wealthy family. His family owns a brewery. They are evangelical Christians. So he is raised with a very good education and with a heavy influence of Christianity. He travels with his father as a missionary. He has private tutors. Um, and his life is very steeped in religious symbolism and Bible study and that sort of thing. He's also given a very good uh, education from private tutors at home. One of the most important things to know about Crowley is that he is a very prolific writer. Even from a young age, he's very dramatic, uh, and he also has a way with words and a love for poetry. He's sent uh, as a preteen to a private boarding school, and he writes a book about this called A Boyhood in Hell that has all of the angst of any emo record you've ever heard. Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's a hell of a name. <laughs> <laughs> so his father dies. Uh, in his teen years, and that sends him spiraling um, in a search for meaning, uh, trying to figure out where God fits into his life. Um, and he turns to a lot of excess. He turns to drugs. He becomes a frequenter of local prostitutes. Um, but he still pursues spirituality as much as he can. When his father dies, he leaves him a ton of money. This is incredibly important when we look at the life of Aleister Crowley. So he's young, he has this drive to be a spiritual person, and he has a ton of money. So what he does is he travels and he joins every organization he can that he think will help him progress his spirituality. 
and it's when you look at the life of Aleister Crowley, it sometimes seems incredibly fantastical and unreal, unless you look at it within the framework of getting a chunk of money thrown in your lap when you're young. So he explores mountain climbing and he holds the record in various um, mountain climbing titles at one point in his life. He travels to India to study Raha Yoga. He travels across China. He travels to Russia. He travels to North America and all across Mexico. He travels across Northern Africa. He travels across Egypt. Pretty much all think, think of all the things you would do if suddenly you could go anywhere you wanted in the world. He, he does it. He has the money to do it. Eventually, he comes back uh, to London and he gets married to a young woman named Rose. She is arranged to be married to somebody else. Uh, however, she is not in love with the man and Crowley presents, why don't you marry me instead? I'll go on with my life, you go on with yours and nobody can say anything about it. So that's what they do the next day, uh, the day after they met. And Oh my God. Yeah, for real. They take their honeymoon in Europe, or I'm sorry, they take their honeymoon in Egypt. They go to Cairo and Rose becomes an incredibly influential person in Crowley's life, um, which is... It's important to note in the story of Aleister Crowley that these women come into his life that really spark these episodes of spiritual enhancement or getting in touch with divinity, particularly feminine divinity, and they spark some of the most important works in his life. So she has a bit of a vision where she goes into a channeling session and says to him, they're waiting for you, they're waiting for you. Um, and this sparks them to do these magical workings that lead to a three-day session of channeling what is now known as the Book of the Law. The Book of the Law is the central text in Thelema. And actually, I'm going to stop right there. I think vocabulary here can be really tricky, so I want to back it up. So when you think of witchcraft as a whole, witchcraft is the ideology, and Gardnerian craft is an organization within witchcraft. Does that make sense? That makes sense. What about OTO? Where, where does that fall in there? That is the organization. So Thelema is the ideology. So there's lots of different people who practice and believe in Thelema that does not make them all OTO. OTO is one specific organization within Thelema. Gotcha. So they channel this book um, that's called the Book of the Law, and it becomes one of the central texts of Thelema, which is used by lots of different Thelemic organizations. The Book of the Law is incredibly important because the words from the Book of the Law, even though I'm guessing most of your listeners have probably never read it, they would recognize words from the, from the Book of the Law. So the Book of the Law gets published in 19, or no, I'm sorry, it's written in 1904. It's not published till five years later. And it ends up being cited and quoted by almost every single occult author for the next hundred years. Even, even, so even if you have no familiarity with the book of the law, you're familiar with the concepts of the book of the law. So for example, the, the book of the law is divided into three chapters, and the first chapter is dedicated to the words of the goddess Nuit. And a lot of the words from that chapter find their way into rituals that are used all over, not only Wicca, but all over um, lots of high magic rituals, lots of mystic rituals. Pretty much anybody writing about spirituality for the next hundred years or so winds up quoting the Book of the Law. Um, I think one of the most popular examples that your readers would recognize 
is The Charge of the Goddess that was that was written by Doreen Valiente was very much inspired by the chapter one of the Book of the Law. Oh, okay, cool. I did not know that, actually. So Crowley writes this book. He's still a young man. He's still very much about pursuing his spirituality. He becomes a Mason. He joins the Golden Dawn. He joins the Ordo Templariantis which is another magical order that started at the time. And what quickly happens is he has very strong energy. He's doing lots of writing, and it's very obvious that he's a leader. So when the current head of the Ordo Templiorientis Royce passes away, Crowley is the obvious successor to the OTO. All right, so the OTO, the Ordo Templiorientis, it's a magical fraternity and organization And their basic goal is to spread the word of Thelema. So in the Book of the Law, Crowley is told that the word of the new Aeon, which if you, I think the most easy way to understand what a new Aeon is, if you think about the classic example of like the age of Aquarius coming, sort of like a next age in human consciousness, that's how I would describe a new Aeon. Crowley is told that a new Aeon is coming and the word of the new Aeon is Thelema. And Thelema means free will. From this concept of Thelema, we get a phrase that anybody who studies Wicca is familiar with. That is, do what thou will shall be the whole of the law. Um, and the book of the law goes on to say that love is the law, love under will. This whole concept of will is sometimes misconstrued about It's understood as doing whatever you want, but that's not really how Crowley understood it. Um, To Crowley, the concept of free will um, or true will was the idea of doing what your soul, and he believed that every soul had a holy guardian angel that sort of directed their life and gave them inspiration in their life, and that that holy guardian angel would direct your true will and help you to see what your true will was upon the earth. So Will did not give you the right to do whatever you wanted. Will gave you more responsibility because you had to live up to your purest ideals. Does that make sense? That does make sense. Man, that's deep. Yeah. (laughs) That's 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 intense. You could go off on that one for quite a while. Oh, I I could definitely see why. (laughs) All right. So other other things you would really want to know about Crowley's life, um, particularly as it comes into Wicca. So after the Book of the Law, he really, he just goes about teaching and writing. He's an amazing poet. His work is hard to understand because he he uses so much poetry. He uses so much symbolism. He works all this amazing symbolism from the Kabbalah and from masonry and from the Golden Dawn in through all of his works. So sometimes you have to understand those references before you can understand Alistair Crowley. But the heart of his work, there's a lot devoted to the defined feminine. He actually names his first daughter, um, Nuit Maha Ahathor Hecate Sappho Jezebel Lilith. Say that three times fast. Yeah, that's that's a that's a mouthful. I'm I'm gonna guess that she never found her name on a keychain or a pencil <laughs> in a bookshop before. She actually passed away, unfortunately, just a few years after she was born. Oh, oh that's that's unfortunate. <laughs> it is unfortunate. So as Crowley develops an amazing reputation as a traveler, as a mountaineer, as a writer, some would call him a prophet, towards the very end of his life in 1947, he meets a man named Gerald Gardner, who I'm guessing everybody in your podcast is familiar with. I, 
Yes, but just as a refresher, it might be good to mention where, uh, you know, Gerald Gardner came from <laughs> or why he's relevant. Oh, some people call him pretty much the dad of Wicca. That's a, that's a thing you'll see online sometimes. So Gerald Gardner was credited with bringing Wicca to light. He's the person who wrote Witchcraft Today. He wrote The Meaning of Witchcraft. He wrote High Magic Aid, which is a book about what they were doing you know, witchcraft-wise when witchcraft was still illegal. He's also pretty much the founder of Gardnerian witchcraft, <laughs> to, to say the least. <laughs> uh, though he worked a lot with uh, Doreen Valiente, and that, that's a whole other topic. But Gerald Gardner... <laughs> <laughs> that, that, yeah, that's, that's for another show. Indeed. And Gardner was very familiar with Crowley's work, um, as anybody who was seriously practicing any version of the occult in the 40s would have been. Um, Crowley did so many revolutionary things, and he was also a media whore. He loved to publish. He loved to do interviews. And oh, I can see why Gardner liked him. Oh, yeah, totally. Uh, they had a lot in common, actually. They were both asthmatics and had to find a way to manage that within ritual. Oh, wow. Yeah, you know, they, they both loved to travel. They were both asthmatics. They both had uh, various health issues. That's a whole other topic. Like, honestly, the overlap between... Crowley and Gardner is like my bread and butter and what I've pretty much been studying for the last 10 years of my life. But, <laughs> so anyhow, Crowley meets Gardner in 1947. Uh, he meets them via the Crowthers. So Arnold and Patricia Crowther are Gardnerian. Well, I'm sorry, let me take that back. Patricia Crowther is a Gardnerian witch and her husband, Arnold Crowther, is in the OTO. And they get this idea, you know, Crowley and Gardner might get along. We should introduce these two. So they introduce them. They meet. They immediately hit it off. Crowley gives Gardner a charter to run uh, a branch of the OTO in England and um, to do lower level initiations. And then Crowley dies later that year. Some hell of a timing. Yeah, for real. So this is where things get really interesting. Because there's a ton of mythology around Crowley and Gardner. And what I, what I find when I talk to people about these two men is that they either believe they were much closer than they were or that they, are, they were much farther apart than they were. And the truth is very much somewhere in the middle. You will hear, especially older people in the community, it's almost like they have this idea that Crowley was the mastermind behind Gardner's version of Wicca, or that Gardner took everything he knew from Crowley. And the truth is very much somewhere in the middle. Um, there is so much in Gardnerian craft that is completely different than anything Aleister Crowley did. However, anybody who says that Gardner was not inspired by Aleister Crowley has just not done their homework. Gerald Gardner was very much inspired by the Gnostic Mass. All of his notebooks reference the works of Aleister Crowley. He uses a lot of the imagery of the Gnostic Mass in Wicca. And I guess I should back it up and talk about what the Gnostic Mass is, huh? There's always so many layers in witchcraft. <laughs> it's like the, the more you get into it, the more they're like, oh, wait, I have to, I have to know about this first. And Oh, wait, there's more to that. It, it, and it's like the deeper you go into it, the more you're like, oh, man, it's just, it's just never ending. Totally, totally. So, all right, if you practice witchcraft, when you get together, it's called circle and ritual. I think that's a vocabulary we're all familiar with. And the main ritual is circle. When you get together, if you're 
in the OTO, the main ritual you get together for is the Gnostic Mass, which is an elaborate ceremony involving a priest and a priestess, a deacon, two officers that are called children, and then the brethren that are attending the Gnostic Mass. So the Gnostic Mass has a lot of things that we would very much recognize if we're coming from a Wicca standpoint. So you have things like the ceremony, what we call cakes and wine. In the Gnostic Mass, there's a whole ceremony of communion where the priest blesses wine and what we call cakes, they would call a host. And, you know, there's a whole thing about him dipping his spear into the chalice that's held by the priestess. Um, all of those things would be very familiar to people who practice Wicca. And Gerald Gardner definitely saw those things in the Gnostic Mass. Yeah, I was going to say, just listening to it, this sounds very familiar. I can also see, maybe not the spear <laughs> or the priestess, but people making comparisons to Catholicism or um, just other religions where they use uh you know, the Holy Eucharist, and then they have their wine as well. But I will say the cakes that I've had in Wiccan circles taste way better than that flavorless wafer that they gave me whenever I went to a Catholic church. So I am much happier with ours. <laughs> you know, I will agree with you there. But as somebody who has made uh, the, the Thelemic version, which is called Cakes of Light, let me say it is not laborless. Those things are typically made by the priestess, and it is a labor of love. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> Yes, very much so. You can't, you can't buy those at your little grocery store. <laughs> I just remember when I was a kid, I, uh, gosh, long story short, I signed up for some magic box from the scholastic book fair thing where every month they would send me either like a spy kit or like a magic trick thing or whatever the, the subscription was. And one of them came with edible paper. And I remember eating it and I was like, this is gross. And then I went to church that next weekend. And I had the the whole Eucharist or whatever. And it tasted just like the edible paper. And ever since then, I'm just like, nope, it tastes like paper. I, I can't do it. It's gross. I am not a fan. <laughs> I enjoy the Wiccan circle cakes much more. I, I definitely hear you on that. I'm from a, my family is all bakers and pastry chefs. So, you know, we take that part of circle very seriously. <laughs> I have seen some pictures of your, your uh, baking skills and they look pretty awesome. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Gravy. So the, the hard thing with Crowley is it's just so deep and it's easy to get overwhelmed. And I find myself that when I get overwhelmed with Crowley and with ceremonial magic and high magic, I try to back it up, look at the big picture and try to put things in words that make sense to me. So what are the things that somebody studying Wicca would find useful from Aleister Crowley is probably, I think, a good step to move towards. So Crowley was an incredibly prolific writer. He released a series of publications called The Equinox that included essays on magical training, on ritual, and a lot of those things were quoted and cited in many magical texts that came out throughout the 50s and 60s. So I'm a little bit of a broken record sometimes in magical communities and magical forums online because somebody will make a statement about a form of magical training, a technique or a line from a ritual. And I'll pop in and I'll be like, that's from Crowley's writing, you know, quote, X, Y, Z, whatever. If you go back and you study his works, it's going to be just an absolute treasure trove of information that can inform and enrich pretty much any other magical type of working that you're doing. All right, 1947, Crowley passes. Gardner has a charter to start his own OTO group in England and to initiate into that OTO group. 
And here's where things get really interesting. Gardner takes that charter that he has and pretty much does absolutely nothing with it. He sticks almost exclusively to Wicca, to enhancing the brotherhood of the Wicca, to working with the priestesses that he's developed relationships with. And there's pretty much no discernible history whatsoever of him doing anything whatsoever with the OTO, despite the fact that he had Crowley's blessing. And this is interpreted a lot of different ways by people. Some people say that, that Gardner just didn't understand what he was given and that he didn't have the magical chops to do anything with it. Some people say that Gardner had a distaste for Crowley because Crowley was openly bisexual and Gardner was more conservative, which is kind of hysterical considering that Gardner was a nudist. And there are those that just say that Gardner was just doing something different altogether. And even though he took some of Crowley's beautiful poetry and put it into his work, the two systems that came out of that period in time, Gardner and Wicca and the Lema, are very complementary, but they're just fundamentally not the same, um, which is very much the camp that I am in. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you what your thoughts were on that, considering you have experience with both. Um, and I, I should interject here and say that I am not a priestess of the OTO, though I do aspire to be one day. I am a member of the Devon Serpent Oasis in Atlanta, and I absolutely adore the OTO and the learning within it, but I have far, far more experience as a high priestess in Gardnerian witchcraft. One of the things that Gardner does that seems incredibly revolutionary, to me at least, is that he takes this system of magic that was very much for the elite before his time and makes it accessible to the everyday person. So if you can imagine, the systems that Crowley was a member of, things like the Golden Dawn and the OTO, um, and he founded another magical association um, called the AA. They're dependent on a tremendous amount of reading, a tremendous amount of free time. You have to do really, really involved meditations and workings that could be very difficult for anybody who has children or has a job. A lot of it, though it's an idealized version of magic, could come off as somewhat classist. Gardner takes all of that and scraps it. And, you know, Gardner has traveled to Malaysia, he spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia, and he incorporates a lot of techniques that involve the body, things like dancing, um, a whole lot more drumming. And um, I tell people that Bro Gardner took all of the magic systems that he found, and he very much made them plug and play. Um, even if you don't understand Kabbalah, even if you don't understand high magic, you can do X, Y, Z in a Gardnerian circle and it will still work. Um, so to someone who doesn't have a ton of money and a ton of free time, or maybe has a lot of children or a learning disability, that's incredibly revolutionary to say that you can achieve the same state of ecstatic revelry and the same connection with deity, despite not being able to be basically an academic. So I have kind of an off-topic thing that I want to kind of get your two cents on that I'm, okay, so <laughs> this comes from things that I've heard the listeners talking about or just reviews that I've read of people talking about, you know, like they'll say, oh, you talk about magic and witchcraft so freely. And as we're going through this and as you're talking about the different magical options out there, we're talking about magic in a real life sense. And I know that there's people out there who are skeptical of magic to begin with. 
So mm-hmm. is there anything that you would say to those people? Because I mean, I do witchcraft. I have experienced magic myself. So, uh, you know, I've seen it firsthand, but I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of people, especially people listening, who may not have that belief yet or may not have experienced it. So what would you say to them? So my favorite definition of magic uh, was written by Aleister Crowley, and it is that magic is the art and science of causing change to occur in conformity with will. So I would say to those people, what you need to do is suspend your disbelief long enough to practice, long enough to try. You need to give yourself the benefit of the doubt that you would give to anything else you were experiencing. If you were sitting down to listen to a new record or try a new TV show, you'd, you'd get into it for a little bit before you automatically said no. Doesn't your spirituality and the progression of your soul deserve that same chance, is what I would say. Oh my gosh, I love that. That's such a great comparison. I mean, there's definitely been, there's, there's been tons of times where I've listened to a whole album before I make a, like a choice on if I like it or not. And oh, I never thought of comparing that to magic. And it's true. You know, I, I remember when, I was first starting out training in my outer court. They they would tell us, you know, when we're going around and we're getting ready to cast circle or whatever, just imagine when you're first starting that you like, what, what would you be seeing if this was a visual thing for you? Like a mat and, and keep that in the back of your mind as we're going through this. And over time it progressed to something very real and transparent. Well, I guess transparent is actually not the word I should be using, but it progresses to something very visual after a while and to a point where you can't deny it anymore. It's there. So yeah, magic is real, guys. Totally. Fun fact. I love that. <laughs> I love that. So what we see happening today is, all right, so during the times of Crowley and Gardner, you had two really different dudes both trying to progress spiritual systems that could be available to the masses in their own way. They both have health issues and they're both really kind of looked down upon by other occultists in their day. Gardner is seen as an oath breaker within the witch community and a media whore. Crowley um, develops, once his money runs out from his inheritance, he's left with some really serious drug addiction issues and a whole lot of debt. He also does a lot of media whoring and is looked down upon by the rest of the community. But they both really put their heart and their soul into developing these traditions, Wicca and Thelema. Fast forward, and what we have today is something that's almost completely different that I'm that I'm really in love with and that works really well, uh, particularly for women today. What you find today is, so when I was training Um, And I was getting into magic and witchcraft in the 90s. Things were presented as, here's all these different traditions. Now choose. Are you going to be a hippie granola witch? Are you going to be a death goth witch? Are you going to go into high magic and archangels? And you kind of had to pick one and go with it. What has evolved in the magical community is that because of the internet and because of the vast majority of us having access to lots of information, you're not just studying one thing because you're exposed to it by a friend that you knew or you came across a book in a bookstore. What happens now is you get information from a lot of different sources. And once you get that information, you're available to research it. You're available to find things that are similar, things that are different. So you get people who are exposed to magic and high magic all at the same time. And because of the internet and because of podcasts, we can actually do a lot more research and get a lot more information without having to spend tons of money. 
And that's really, really fucking important. I want to put a big, huge, giant exclamation mark after that. Uh, Once upon a time, you would really have to save up your money to buy books to figure out what do I want to learn about next? Am I going to study divination or do I want to look at ritual channeling? And depending on how much money was available to you, that's what you would study. We have a very different world today. You can get on the internet. You can listen to podcasts. Um, You probably, a lot of people don't realize the local library is a tremendous source. Um, I live in South Carolina in Greenville. My local library does not have a physical stitch about anything remotely occult. But my library's app that I can access through my phone for free has a treasure trove of books by Aleister Crowley, Israel Regardi, modern people like Thorne Mooney and Deb Lip. I can access a ton of books from my phone, from my library on the occult. Um, So that's huge. So what we see in magical communities today is you don't have people who are really into Thalema or really into Wicca and don't have any overlap whatsoever. I mean, you might have some, but it's not very common within the younger community. What you see is people who practice high magic, but also have an altar to Hecate in their living room. Or you see witches who practice Gardnerian craft, but also study Solomonic or, you know, Goetic magic. You can do all of those things at the same time. You can study those things at the same time. You don't have to pick one or the other. And there's a lot more chance now that when you encounter people in those communities that they're going to have experience with both and be able to talk to you and talk you through how they work together, which is really a brilliant thing because they can complement each other so well. Yeah. And, and, you know, I want to say something about this, too, where I see a lot of people get caught up with not having a teacher. I'll see a lot of people online say, oh, I really want to learn about X, Y and Z, but oh, I need somebody to teach me how to do this. I need a mentor, a guider, or a guide person to guide me. I need an elder. The amount of times I've seen these posts in just like the greater Facebook community is insane. <laughs> I, I just want to stress what Angela's saying, how there's so many options out there. There are so many books, so many podcasts, so many YouTube videos. There's Discord pages. I mean, there's everything. Please don't get caught up in the idea that you have to have a mentor or a teacher in order to learn something when there are probably hundreds of books on the exact topic that you want. A teacher is there to guide you. They're a good sounding board. It's great to have somebody to practice with and to have somebody who's more experienced to draw from and to kind of have a more well-rounded education. But you're never going to learn about a certain style of witchcraft or whatever topic. It doesn't even have to be witchcraft. It could be anything. If you get caught on this idea that you have to have somebody there to teach it to you, because if you never pick up the book, you're not going to learn it. So make sure you don't have that as an excuse. Pick up a book if you're interested in learning about it. Actually, pick up more than one book. Get different perspectives on how people talk about these topics. Oh, my God. Yes, yes. And, I, you know, it's, it's the nature of the occult world that every generation sort of idealizes the methodology of the generation before them. You know, I, I came up in the time that When I first started exploring witchcraft, you would go to one local shop. It was your head shop and it was your one stop for everything. They would sell occult books, probably bongs and pipes, maybe dresses, jewelry, everything right there. And it probably also sold sex toys. It was like all your naughty things in one shop. And then there was this transition and suddenly there were Borders bookstores, if you remember those, where you could find an entire aisle of Llewellyn books. And I remember people at that time talking about how absurd and ridiculous it was that there were all these options. 
And I think we're going through something like that again now. I see a lot of elders in the community talking about, especially in the time of COVID, all of my students want links to podcasts and they want links to websites. And I don't know how to deal with that because I learned magic from books and people. We're never going to have the same path as our teacher. We're always going to forge our own path. That's just the nature of magic and the nature of the soul. Yeah, that's very, very true. I'm not, and you know what, that also even goes to the person sitting next to you. You're never going to have the same journey as them. You're not going to have the same experience as them. And if you do, one, I'm curious as to what they are, unless you both experience something magical happening at the exact same time, <laughs> then that I understand. But you can't compare yourself to other people in Wicca or witchcraft. You're not going to be going through the same thing as them. And it's not a journey or it's not a race. It is a journey. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a race. The magic's going to be there. The gods aren't going anywhere. If you're practicing Wicca, just keep that in mind. <laughs> Love it. Angela, I do want to ask you something. So you've mentioned it a couple times. I know what it is, but the listeners might not. Could you explain what high magic is? And then um, can you also then compare that with what low magic is? It is a, a classification that's often com- assigned to different categories of magic based on what you are studying and researching. So traditionally, High magic involves a lot more academic study. You're very much concerned with things of a celestial nature. So for any working you're doing, what are the correspondences of the planets? What are the correspondences of the Kabbalah? There's a whole nother branch of ceremonial magic that just deals with ancient grimoires, archangels, demonology. So things, think of things outside of this plane. And then low magic would be things of a terrestrial nature rather than a celestial nature. So things of the earth, things like plants, things like the energy of the body, things like I'm just going to sit here and howl and, you know, reach into my soul and grab all of my emotion and turn that into energy and shape it into a ball and charge the spell with it. Things that are more of that nature. But I will also say that those two classifications are very stereotypical of an ideology that said that people can only practice one kind of magic. What you find now is that those two very much overlap. And you can, you can find that person who really gains a whole lot out of doing all of the academic research um, into every single spell they're doing. And then when it comes time to activate that spell, they've done all that academic research. They know all the planetary alignments but they've also looked at the correspondences of all those herbs. And they also really love having drumming in the background. You don't have to be either or your magic can be uniquely you. And what that looks like doesn't have to fall into the vocabulary of magicians from 50 years ago. Yeah. (laughs) When you were saying that, I was just like, yes. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, magic progresses, magic changes over time. And it's almost kind of like what you were saying, like you're not gonna have the same experience as your teachers. Your teachers are used to learning from books, learning from people. People nowadays, we listen to podcasts, we go online, we talk to each other through video chats. It's different. It's it's not the same world. And I mean, God, I mean, who knows? Maybe sometime in COVID, we're all sitting at home bored. Maybe somebody else will figure out medium magic or like midway magic. And that'll be a new term we can all use now. Who knows? Yes, totally. And I I think Also, different magics appeal to you at different sources in your life. You know, there's going to be times where maybe you really need the magic of the planets or you really need the divine voice of that holy guardian angel or the archangel or something that you feel is outside yourself. And there's times that you really just want to dig into this energy and the spirit of the earth. And that's okay. 
part of living a magical life means that your magical existence right now is going to change and evolve. And it's not going to be the same as what you need 10 years from now or 20 years from now. Yeah, your needs and what you want to study and practice will definitely wax and wane as you go through it. Totally. All right. So we talked a lot about Aleister Crowley. Is there anything else you want to add about him and his influences? I would say the most important thing about Crowley is don't be afraid when you start reading Crowley if you don't understand it. Um, So I, my background, I grew up in a very working class family in Chicago. Um, I have a learning disability and my family is from Mexico and I was not the person that is the stereotypical high magician who we envision as a single man with a higher degree with lots of free time. You know, it's not what you envision as a high magician, you know? (laughs) You know, especially I didn't really get into high magic until after I was initiated before I had my son, but I really started to understand high magic after I had my son. And one of the curious things about having a child for me is um, I breastfed until he was two years old which meant that I had no time for reading whatsoever. So I was almost completely dependent on audiobooks, on YouTube videos of people doing the Gnostic Mass and talking about the works of Crowley, which doesn't really jive with how you think about studying high magic. But that's what I had to do because I had a demanding career. I had a baby that wanted to eat and I was running a coven. So there are methodologies out there for you to engage this material. Don't be afraid if when you sit down and start reading, if that's not the methodology for you. I know for me, when I started talking to other women in the OTO, that's when it really started to click for me. When they started to talk about the experience of particularly with engaging with chapter one of the Book of the Law or different magical techniques that they learned from Crowley. And honestly, all the books from my local library, Um, being able to listen to those on audio while I cook or fold laundry or feed my baby. That's really what did it for me. So if it's hard the first time, try again, try a different method. So, so with that, do you have any recommendations of, of books that people should pick up if they are interested in learning more about this? I will say go onto your local library's website, or I'm sorry, onto their app and see what audiobooks they have from Aleister Crowley and start there. There are so many books from Aleister Crowley, I couldn't even begin to list them all. Cool. Well, we've talked a lot about Crowley. Is there any any (laughs) additional things that you want to mention about him? Holy cow, I feel like we went through so much stuff. Good gravy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then if that's the case, uh, yeah, I think that... If you're interested, (laughs) read those books, guys. Yeah, I I was super happy that Angela wanted to come on. When we talked about doing an episode, she had mentioned two topics. And it was this one and another one, which I'm not going to mention because who knows if she'll come on and do another. Maybe she'll... She'll want to come back. We'll see. <laughs> and uh, I, I was like, oh, you know, whichever topic you want to do, you're more comp- or most comfortable with is completely fine with me. And I was really hoping that she would say this one. And I'm so happy that she did. And I'm so happy that we got to record this episode because I, I was telling her before we started, I don't know anything about him. I know he has a tarot deck that he created and that's about it. <laughs> so I was happy to have somebody on who was able to give an educational overview of him and his influences in witchcraft because I would have not been able to do that if I tried to look this up myself. Thank you so much for having me on, Ashley. I appreciate the opportunity. I think so many witches stay away from this topic and it's one that can really enhance and enrich any practice of Wicca. Oh, definitely. No, thank you for coming on. 
Okay, so since we're pretty much at the end of the episode, so I do have a question for you that I ask every single person who comes on the show. And that's if you have one piece of advice that you can give to a brand new witch, what would you tell them? What I tell all of the members of my coven, especially the new members, is that your job as a beginner is to be magically promiscuous. Um, It's one thing to have knowledge and it's one thing to know what you want. And it's another thing to take that knowledge and focus it and dare and try and risk failure. And your job is to go out there and learn what kind of magic works for you. That's awesome. (laughs) So try all the love spells, guys. Angela's giving you permission. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well, okay. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much, Angela, for coming on. If anybody ever wanted to reach out to you and say hello or maybe ask a question about something that was talked about in this episode, how can they reach you? Um, You can find me on Twitter at Witchy Spice. And if you are a Gardnerian or Alexandrian initiate who is interested in Thelema, I run a Facebook group uh, that is Thelemic Gardnerians and Alexandrians. You can find me there. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Angela, for coming on. And thank you to everybody for listening. As always, you can find me all over the internet. <laughs> if you haven't found me already, here, here's where you can get me. Uh, I'm on Instagram at Seeking Witchcraft. I'm on Twitter at Seek Witchcraft. I'm on Facebook as Seeking Witchcraft Podcast. Or I also have a Facebook group, which is called Witches Seeking Witchcraft. It's a group for people who listen to the community or the podcast who just want to reach out to other listeners and ask questions. I also have a Patreon if anyone's interested in supporting the show. It's just patreon.com slash seekingwitchcraft. And I do want to give a shout out to the people who are in my Patreon. The different groups are the Witchlings, the Neophytes, the Dedicants, and the Seekers. Thank you guys so much. I did raise enough funds to buy a microphone, so I'm super stoked about that. By the time I'm recording this episode, I still don't have it. (laughs) This is probably going to come out uh, by the time I now have a microphone, but that's just fun of pre-recording episodes on podcasts. So anyway, thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you again, Angela, for coming on. This has been such a pleasure to have you and you are welcome back anytime that you would like. Thank you so much, Ashley. Oh, no problem. All right. Well, I'll talk to you all later. Bye. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.